Our New Testament reading is from Mark 14, verses 32 through 42, and you can find it on page 496 in your paper Bible. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter with him and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, you are asleep. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know this by personal experience, but I am told that the most difficult part of running a marathon is when you've been running for a while. The adrenaline of starting the race has worn off, and the finish line is still far away. You feel it in your chest, in your lungs, and in your legs. You are exhausted. You're nauseous, out of breath. And in that dreadful moment, you realize you're only halfway. And it's in that middle mile that your body tells you to quit. Everything physiologically tells you that you're not going to make it. You know when you near the finish line, you'll unearth the inspiration to give it all you've got because you're almost there. But those who endure the middle mile and endure it well are those who have trained their minds to find that extra push from somewhere and to keep going when things get most difficult. Now, we might be in the middle mile right now. We are juggling too much. We're stretched too thin. We're on the cusp of losing our jobs, some of us. Others of us have been looking for work for a really, really long time. Interview after interview, resume after resume, we all seem to hear the same thing over and over, just the same answer. No. No. We pick up the phone suddenly, and we get the phone call that a loved one is in the hospital. We're needed more now than ever, but we feel powerless to help them. Many of us are angry, angry at God. We are not where we're supposed to be. Our careers are not where they're supposed to be. We were supposed to be married by now. Or others of us have been married and are married, but we feel even lonelier than before. We feel undermined, unseen. We are in the middle mile. We don't feel up to it. We feel overwhelmed with dread. And when we come to the passage that was read to us this morning, we find our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we find him in the same place where we find ourselves. 
he is not feeling up to it. And he's overwhelmed with dread. So this morning, I want to ask two questions. Two questions this morning. First, why is Jesus overwhelmed? And second, how does Jesus finish the race? Why is Jesus overwhelmed? How does Jesus finish the race? First, why is Jesus overwhelmed? It's the night before the cross. The entire Gospel of Mark has been leading us to this moment. Throughout his ministry, throughout his journey, he's been walking towards Jerusalem, inching his way closer to the cross. It was the reason why he came. Last week we saw that Jesus broke bread with his disciples and said, take and eat. And then he took the cup, said drink. The cup that Jesus gave pointed to the cross. It was the reason why he came. And yet before crossing the finish line, we see Jesus stumbling. And he feels overwhelmed with fear. And so he asks his friends, three of his disciples, his closest, to stay up with him and pray. And in the garden, we see Jesus praying, begging earnestly, three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. Abba, Father, if it is possible, if there's any other way, please, please, please remove this cup. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want it. Now we find perhaps some of the strongest emotional language to describe Jesus compacted in these few verses. In verse 36, he was greatly distressed and troubled. Now the word greatly distressed is one word in the original language. One commentator said that it's best described as a shuddering horror. It's extremely strong language. Verse 37 He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The word very sorrowful is a compound word in the Greek. It's perilupos. Perilupos. The first part of the word peri is the Greek root where we get our English word perimeter. Jesus is saying that I feel like my soul is surrounded with sorrow. It is all around me. I feel like I'm not going to make it. I am overwhelmed. And even before Jesus goes to the cross, it's already feeling like death to him. This is why Jesus begs God, take this cup from me. Take this cup, the cup that's already taking its toll. Now, what's in the cup? What's in the cup? Well, it's the undiluted wrath of God. In the Old Testament, the cup imagery referred to the undiluted wrath of God. It was called the cup of staggering. The cup of staggering. And anyone who would drink this cup would have to drink it down to the bottom. Down to the dregs. Now if you've ever brewed coffee and I don't mean with those cool K-cups that we got going on now but I mean the old fashioned way. If you've brewed coffee you know that you got all those nasty coffee grinds on the bottom. The bottom is where you have all the remnants, the pulp, the gunk that you don't really want to drink. And that's the picture that we have. The undiluted wrath of God, all of it, in all its bitterness, would be poured into a cup. And Jesus would have to drink all of it to the bottom. And we can start to understand why Jesus 
seeks out the company of his friends. We can see why Jesus does not feel up to it, why he is overwhelmed with dread. Now, many have found this passage to be offensive. It is scandalous to followers and skeptics alike. To Jews and to Greek mind, they just had a hard time accepting that, how, that God can become man. How the Christ they worshipped could be human. The, how the impassable God who could not suffer could be swallowed up in suffering. It's uncomfortable for many of us to think of Jesus in his way. We don't know what to do with it. It makes us un- uncomfortable. Many of us think of Jesus as some sort of ethereal you know, freak of nature who's sort of human, but not exactly like us. He, he's different. We think of Jesus as walking on water, of feeding the multitudes, of healing the people, of raising the dead. And we tend to think of Jesus as some sort of alien-like creature who is immune to our pain. At least he doesn't experience it like we do. We think of Jesus as, you know, not quite God, not quite man, but some sort of blending of the two, forming something else. Now, last weekend, my wife and I, Kendra and I, uh, we went to go watch the Black Panther. Anyone see the Black Panther? Now, if you remember the Black Panther, the main character puts on the Black Panther suit. And the suit is so strong that whoever is wearing it is protected from any sort of significant pain. Is that what we have here? Is that what we have in the person of Jesus? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see our Lord staggering. We see him stumbling. This passage has been perplexing for many, not least because it makes Jesus seem weak. It makes our Lord seem fragile, like he can't handle things. And many of us don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with a God who can suffer. But I hope we will see that this is something that actually can bring us a lot of hope. Now, many have noticed that other people seem to be braver than Jesus. I mean, many throughout the course of history have been crucified. The crucifixion was a form of execution not unique to Jesus. And many have noted that others, even many of Jesus' own followers, have seemed to die a more heroic death than Jesus himself. Now, how is it that Jesus demonstrates such unbecoming anguish? When many of his followers went to their deaths with greater poise and serenity. I think of the first martyr, or one of the first martyrs, Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, and towards the end of his life, he was given a choice either recant his faith or to be burned at stake. And Polycarp essentially said, if you're going to have to bring out the fire, you're going to have to bring out the fire. Bring it on. And here we see Jesus saying, please, please, 
please take this cup from me. Was Polycarp braver than Jesus? Or was the poison, was the cup filled with a different poison? And you see, I think that's exactly it. Because all throughout Jesus' life, he heard the words, you are my son. In you, I am well pleased. He heard that all his life. He had that sort of intimacy and security and connection with his heavenly father. He didn't hear those words in this cup. Instead, he heard the words, away from me, you evildoer, you murderer, you adulterer. You see, the cup that Jesus had to drink, imagine every tear shed, every wound inflicted, everything that's wrong with the world, everything bitter poured into this one cup. And Jesus would have to drink all of it. And it was his and his alone to drink. And we start to see and feel and understand why that Jesus does not feel up to it. We get why Jesus was overwhelmed with dread. We just might have an idea and see that our Lord Jesus, it might have been a really heavy burden to carry. He's overwhelmed. So how does Jesus finish the race? How does Jesus finish the race? He does so honestly and resolutely. Honestly and resolutely. First, he does so honestly. He is utterly honest in his prayers. Do our prayers sound like Jesus' prayers in Gethsemane? Are they characterized by that sort of sheer honesty? Now, if you're like me, most of us are tempted to tell God what we think he wants to hear. But we see Jesus praying, begging three times to remove the cup. He wants a pass. He wants to tap out an abort mission. Not only does Jesus tell God how he really feels, but he lets his disciples in on what's really going on inside him. He gives his disciples a state of his heart, and he admits to being overwhelmed. We don't like to say those words. We don't like to tell people that. We don't like telling people that we don't have it all together. That there are things that are too big for us to handle on our own. But three times, Jesus turns to his friends, asks them to stay up with him, to be with him, to pray for him, to be there when he needed them most. He sought them out. I need your help. And yet I think, interestingly enough, it's interesting to think that it is the disciples rather than Jesus who are overconfident. Because they are asked three times to stay awake, to watch and pray, and each time they fall asleep. Three times. We think of the time, which is the passage before, we are reminded that the Apostle Peter was told by the Lord Jesus that he's going to betray Jesus three times. Just right before this, Jesus, this, Jesus says to Peter, this very night, you will betray me, or you'll deny me, three times. Peter goes, what? How could you? Why would you say that? I would never. 
I am offended. I would never, I would rather die. Jesus, I would die for you. I'll die for you. But I won't stay awake. Not when you need me. Kendra and I love watching movies, and after we put the kids to bed, oftentimes we'll throw on, we'll put on Netflix and we'll, we'll turn on something to watch that evening. And, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say that most nights, you know, just the good majority of the time, I'll start to doze off before we even get halfway through. And it happens so much that Kendra has started to pick up on certain cues to know when it's coming. And she'll, she'll notice that I'll get really quiet and really still, and then she'll really know. And then she'll press pause and say, sweetie, sweetie, get up. Honey, get up. Walk around. Use the bathroom. Eat some fruit snacks. Do whatever it takes to reset and wake up. And I'll be like, every single time, every single time, I'll be like, what's going on? Why'd you press pause? I'm awake. I'm fine. I've got this. And reluctantly, with little choice, you'll replay the movie. And moments later, she'll hear me snoring. And then she'll pause the movie. And she'll say, what just happened? <laughs> and it's in moments like these where I have absolutely no idea. I get really embarrassed. And I don't know what to say. And I love verse 40. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They did not know what to answer him. What do you say in those moments? What do you say then? Oops. Sorry. My bad, Jesus. Undoubtedly, they were embarrassed. I would even say they were probably surprised. And I think the sort of prayers that help us get through the middle mile are those that are utterly honest with who we are and what we struggle with. And we need to learn to admit to God and to each other that we do not have it all together. We don't. And we're allowed and we're able and we're free and we can bring to Jesus, we can bring to God what we're really dealing with because He was one of us. Jesus was not an alien. He was fully human. So He's able to relate with everything we're going through. All of it. We can tell Jesus that we just want to throw in a towel. That we don't look forward to tomorrow. That we can't seem to handle it or take it anymore. We just want to give up. You want to give up? So did Jesus. You feel utterly alone, betrayed, Afraid? So did Jesus. Some of us are struggling with immense physical pain. And we have a hard time getting up out of bed 
We have a hard time concentrating at work or doing our normal daily routine. Others of us have immense emotional struggle and we're losing it. And we feel stuck with where we're at. Maybe even forsaken by God. We have one, Jesus, who was nailed to the cross. And there he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of us struggle to trust that God would provide for our needs. You know, Boston's really expensive. And I've been here since June or so, and man, it's expensive. And we struggle to believe that God will provide for us and our families. Let's not forget that Jesus himself was a businessman. We don't tend to think of Jesus in that way. But he was a carpenter who had to make a living. And he too had to deal with the ebb and flow of society just like we do. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, he says this, he was made like us in every respect. And it is only because he suffered when tempted that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Some of you may think, he doesn't really know what I'm going through. He doesn't know what it's like to be an addict. He doesn't know what it's like to be me too. He's never faced the temptations I face. I mean, they're more realistic for me. I like what C.S. Lewis says. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into the temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to find it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. And I love this. C.S. Lewis goes on to say that Jesus is the only complete realist. End quote. Because Jesus took on flesh. He gets every scope of temptation that we face. He is Emmanuel. God with us. God as us. And there is no grief too low, no pain so severe, no temptation too strong that is outside of his sympathy. Why would we not be utterly honest with our struggles to him and ask for his help. How does Jesus finish the race? He does so honestly. But also, he does so resolutely. 
He does so resolutely. He is resolute in his mission. He knew the reason why he came. It was a rescue mission that began and sprung from the heart of God himself. And he, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, in concert knew exactly what it would take, what it would cost, how far he would need to go to redeem the ones he loved. You see, we not only have a God who ran with us, we have a God who ran for us. The necessity of the cross, the necessity of the incarnation. Jesus had to live his life, not for himself, but for others. To talk about Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, meaning Jesus, when he was a kid, obeyed his parents faithfully. Jesus, was, when he was an adult, he, was, he honored his mother and father. Jesus, everything about him, all of his life, every step he took, every breath he took, was done vicariously for others. He, Jesus, lived for us. And at the end of his life, he would have to drink the bitter cup to cross the finish line. He would have to drink the bitter cup and die in our place. He would have to die in our place. Now, he was resolute in his mission. The Father was resolute in his mission. Together they worked to finish out the plan. Every time that Jesus prayed, Thy will be, every time Jesus prayed, take this cup away, he also prayed, Thy will be done. And the Father's will, I mean, we talk about Jesus, we think, we think of God as some angry God, and Jesus has to step in, like, no, don't hurt him. And like, God's out to get us. I mean, many of us, we think that, you know, you know especially of us, some of us here who might not be Christian, we, you know, we might have a sticking point with Christianity, and that's our whole issue, because we think of God as an angry God, and we just don't like that notion. It's primitive, it's dangerous. But guys, in the gospel, we don't have a God who is out to get us or who takes pleasure in our destruction. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. And he, the father, did not spare his own son, even when his son asked to be spared, because the father was resolute in his mission. And Jesus here is absolutely just as equally as resolute. Take this cup from me, but thy will be done. And it was the, fa- it was the Father's will that Jesus stay on course and finish the race. Even when he begged God for a pass, please, 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 he still got up and drank the cup. He was resolute to the bitter end. And that is the gospel. Jesus ran with us, and Jesus ran the race for us. Some of you guys know that I'm a middle child, and all this stuff about the middle child syndrome is probably true. Uh, but uh, I have some good memories with, about my older brother and younger brother both. Uh, but one of my most memorable experiences and memories of my older brother is on my first day of kindergarten. 
And I grew up in a household that spoke exclusively Korean, and I never went to preschool. And so I remember the night before my first day of kindergarten, I was terrified. It was a long, endless night. I hardly got any sleep at all. Uh, because, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I didn't even know the language. How was I supposed to know where to catch the bus or when to get off? How was I supposed to know where like, my classroom was, where I was supposed to go, or how I was supposed to get back home? I had no idea. I just could not sleep. The next morning, I woke up in tears. And my father pulled me and brought my older brother in and said, I want you to look at Peter. He pointed to my brother. He said, Steve, look at your older brother. He has gone through it already. And he knows what he's doing. And he is with you. And he turned to my older brother and, and he said, make sure you take care of your little brother and make sure you bring him back safely. And my older brother nodded. And when I looked at my older brother at that very moment, I knew. I just knew that everything was going to be okay. You know what happened later that day? On the bus ride home, I fell asleep on the bus, and my older brother got off the bus and left without me. <laughs> um, um, imagine my thought when I woke up. What? And... When the bus driver realized that I was still on the bus and what was going on, he, he dropped every other kid off at their bus stops and then drove back around to drop me off at mine. And when we got to the bus stop, my family was outside waiting for me. My mother had an anxious look about her. And my older brother had his head down <laughs> like he let people down. I was just glad to be home. I mean, I never faulted my older brother. I never faulted my older brother. Because I knew that he always had the best intentions. But the gospel says that we have an older brother who not only had the best intentions, but who saw it through. He stayed the course. He finished the race. Even when he did not want to take a step further Something pushed him through. Now, some of us may have run marathons. Is Jason, where's Jason? How, how many miles is a marathon? 23, is that right? 26. 26. See, I, I would stop at 20, I would stop at two. <laughs> but some of us have endured marathons. Some of us have endured years of studying for a single exam. Some of us are, maybe even now, are enduring residency. And you're having to put in your hours, to put in your time, and work ungodly hours. And when you're exhausted, and when you want to give up, what pushes you through? It's the payoff. It's the promotion. It's the prize. What was in it for Jesus? Why did he drink the bitter cup? What was his prize? It was us. We were the joy set before him. It was so that his father might become our father. It was so that his intimate cry of Abba might become our intimate cry too. 
Hebrews 12, 1, 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have an older brother who refused to leave without us. And so he has proven that no matter what we're struggling with, that he would never let us run the race alone. And he would never ask us to run a race that he himself has not finished already. We have an older brother like that. Jesus ran the race with us and for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your mercy. Uh, I pray first and foremost for anyone here who does not know you. That whatever questions they have, whatever struggles, whatever doubts, that they would know that you are good for it. That they can come to you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, you would do that very thing. Show yourself as not only true, but beautiful. For all of us here who are struggling with something, Lord, you know our cries. You know our groans, for you groan yourself. You know exactly the doubts that we have. And so, Lord, I want to ask for those of us here who don't know you or struggling or wondering just how am I going to get through just today? You taught us to pray, give us today, this day our daily bread. Would you give us a strength to get through today? Would you let us know that you are with us? I pray for those who are hurting physically. Would you minister to us? Those of us in lonely relationships, in marriages, uh, for those of us who are lonely singles, we pray that you would minister to us and let Jesus be real. I pray as we continue our service, as we come to the Lord's table, that you would show us the reality of Jesus, that you would be beautiful, that we cannot help but follow your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.